Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. Russian artillery pounds key cities in Ukraine. Death and destruction left behind in towns near the capital after Russian troops withdraw. The full extent of the damage coming into view. Two Harvard students create a website to help Ukrainian refugees find shelter around the world. More than 18,000 hosts have signed up so far. A small automaking town in Russia is taking a blow from Western sanctions. Several car manufacturing plants have already shut down. New developments in the Crossfire Hurricane saga. John Durham publishes potentially conclusive evidence against a former lawyer for the Clinton campaign. It alleges he lied to the FBI. Russian artillery pounded the Ukrainian cities of Mariupol and Kharkiv today as the West prepares more sanctions against Moscow. And now that Russian forces have withdrawn from the area around Kyiv, the sheer scope of the damage is coming into view. NTD's Jessica Beatty reports. As the war in Ukraine intensifies, more visuals of the sheer destruction, this time in the town of Borodyanka. It's located near Bucha on the outskirts of Kyiv. This area has seen intense firefights and military airstrikes, which have reduced many parts to rubble. The road from Kyiv to Borodyanka is lined with villages heavily damaged after Russia's occupation. Over in Bucha, residents make their way through a street full of destroyed Russian tanks. One man says he didn't leave the house at all while Russian troops were there. I heard something like explosions. My neighbor went out to the crossroad and boom, that was it for him. He says it's the first time he's ever seen something like this. Honestly, I served in the army, but something like this, I have never witnessed it. I just can't understand. Why do they need to kill civilians? I don't get it. Another man says he still can't express all the emotions he has. I have to get used to the peaceful life again. To compare it to these events, I just can't explain it. The UN reports more than 4.2 million people have now fled Ukraine, and more than 7 million have been internally displaced. On Wednesday, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky asked Irish lawmakers to, quote, show more leadership and convince EU partners to introduce more sanctions against Russia. We have to uh, put an end to trading with Russia. We have to cut ties of Russian banks to the global system, cut the sources of uh, their income. Zelensky this week accused Russia of not being sincere in its peace talks. And the Kremlin Wednesday said talks are not progressing rapidly enough blaming images of graves and dead bodies coming out of Bucha, which Moscow describes as fake and staged by Ukrainian forces to make Russia look bad. The Kremlin says for peace talks, there's still a long road ahead. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. A driver died after ramming his car into the gate of the Russian embassy in Bucharest early today. A Romanian prosecutor said the driver lit a device, causing the car to burst into flames after the crash. He said the driver's body was sent for an autopsy and the car would be transported to a police facility for further investigation. In recent weeks, several Russian embassies in Europe have been targeted by protesters angered by the invasion of Ukraine. Romania said on Tuesday it would expel 10 Russian diplomats who are not acting in accordance with international rules 
joining other European countries that have done so in recent days. Over 600,000 Ukrainians have fled to Romania since Russia invaded their country on February 24th, and around 80,000 are still in Romania. President Zelensky spoke before the U.N. Security Council on Tuesday, accusing Russian troops of atrocities that Moscow denies in the town of Bucha. Now we hear from Peter Docker. He's a former Royal Air Force commander. He tells us more about what he says is a driving force behind Zelensky's leadership. Zelensky has used fear as a trigger, and he's used that as a trigger, a warning flag, to be driven actually by love. And love comes up a lot in combat. I've been in combat myself during the Iraq War in 2003 and the 1991 war that went before it. I've led people in combat. And we might not talk about love that much, but I can tell you that's what drives people forward. And in the case of Zelensky, it's his love for his people, it's his love for his country and of their sovereignty that gives him the energy to continue forward, even in the face of almost insurmountable odds. It's that what drives him forward. And that is very different from what is driving Putin. And what do you make of the sentiment among the citizens of Sweden and Finland in wanting to join NATO? Well, I can completely understand it. Uh, You know, to be part of of NATO is to be part of a large bloc that has a common defence understanding, a common commitment to one another uh, to, to support in the case of aggression from overseas. Peter, can you tell us about your time at the British Ministry of Defence? Yes, as relates to what we're seeing at the moment, uh, I was part of a a British negotiating team with NATO to go and negotiate with the Russians, ironically, around cooperation shortly after the Berlin Wall had come down. And I remember very distinctly, as our negotiating party, we, we were on one side of the table and there was the Russian general on the opposite side of the table. And it was all smiles because it was all about cooperation. But then the smile disappeared from his face and he banged the table and he said, what NATO must understand is that Russia will never, ex- uh, will never accept, will never accept the expansion of NATO to its borders. And that was back in the 90s. Um, and so this has been a common theme. And now, as I said, NATO has expanded to 30 nations And so I can fully understand why perhaps Russia feels as it does. It doesn't give any excuse for what's going on in Ukraine. Ukrainian farmers say exports are even more important for their country right now due to the war. Several Ukrainian fruit and berry companies are attending an international trade fair in Berlin. Here are the details. Despite financial difficulties inside their country, Some Ukrainian companies are able to send representatives to the Fruit Logistica trade show in Berlin. There, they can showcase the Ukrainian fruit and berry industry. Representatives of Ukrainian fruit and vegetable companies say they are fighting for their country in a way that they can by trying to drum up business. It is really important for the Ukraine, we understand it. We try to push ourselves as hard as possible, even in these hard times, to work. And many people are ready to do it. Many people want to support Ukraine. We want to keep our economy going. We want to keep doing the export to other countries. We want to participate in the economy. Many companies couldn't make it to Berlin because they were stuck in conflict areas that are too dangerous to leave. 
The coordinator of the Ukrainian booth says that exports will be key to Ukraine because the domestic economy is destroyed by the war. We have a lot of limitations. That is why export is very important. Uh, local purchasing power of people is very low and will be very low during one, two years at least uh, when, uh, while we will recover our country. So for us, export is uh, a source of income for the country, source of income for the companies, for salaries. A representative for the East Ukrainian packaging company, Sem Ecopack, says continuing normal business is a way to fight for the country. It's important to keep uh, producing, to keep uh, uh, the possibility to, to, to supply food chains to the people, etc. So we didn't doubt in any moment that we should to stop uh, until we can um, say that it's safe to work, to continue production. We will do this because it's very important for the nation. The Fruit Logistica trade show in Berlin runs through April 7th. Two Harvard students have created a website to help Ukrainian refugees find shelter around the world. More than 18,000 hosts have signed up to offer assistance to those needing help so far. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more. Marco Burstein and Avi Schiffman used their coding skills to create UkraineTakeShelter.com in three days in early March. They wanted to help refugees find temporary homes, matching up potential hosts with those in need of somewhere to stay. We've had over 18,000 hosts sign up to offer assistance to refugees, and refugees can log on and put in their location to do a search and find hosts that match with them. We've heard all sorts of amazing stories of hosts and refugees getting connected all over the world. Growing international outrage over Russia's attacks on Ukrainian homes and civilian infrastructure compelled the friends to act. We decided to build Ukraine Take Shelter because we had been seeing a lot of videos and photos online of the situation that was happening in Ukraine, and we decided this was a way that we could help. Even though me and Avi live on opposite sides of the country, and of course we're on the other side of the world uh, from Ukraine, we decided that because of technology and, and through the internet, we would be able to, to lend a helping hand. Schiffman previously created the coronavirus tracking website ncov2019.live and came up with the idea for the refugee website after attending a protest in San Diego. So I'm kind of known as like an internet activist in that way. And then I have um, the skills to make websites and apps and all those kinds of things with technology. So I felt that I could really do something on a more global scale here. Swedish resident Ricard Mayarov found the Ukraine Take Shelter website and signed up and ended up giving refuge to 45-year-old Oksana Franceva, her 18-year-old daughter, and their 8-year-old cat. Basically, we follow the... Uh, the news quite close uh, was going on in uh, in Ukraine. Me and my wife discussed it a little bit and yeah, wanted to help the way we can. The UN High Commissioner for Refugees says more than 4 million people have now fled Ukraine. Of those, 2.3 million have entered Poland. Anti-human trafficking activists warn of increased risks for vulnerable populations and advise willing donors to vet the charities they support. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. The website of a Russian state oil company shut down after what seemed to be an attack by hackers. The action may have targeted government-linked sites on purpose. The company is known as Gazprom Neft, the oil arm of Russian state gas giant Gazprom. The hacked website briefly showed a statement attributed to Gazprom CEO Alexei Miller. The statement was critical of Russia sending troops to Ukraine. Miller is a close ally of Vladimir Putin. He previously urged the company's 500,000 employees to support Putin amid foreign pressure. 
Shortly after the critical statement appeared, the website stopped working. Gazprom Neft explained that the information posted was untrue and cannot stand for an official statement. Earlier in February, the country's state news agency's website came under similar hacking attacks following Moscow's aggression against Ukraine. The impact of Western sanctions has spread to a small town in Western Russia. There, several car manufacturing plants have halted their operations. The small Russian city of Kaluga is reeling from Western sanctions. Thousands of auto workers have been laid off. Food prices are soaring. The only question is when can we start to work again, because such an uncertain situation worries people. We have had downtime for weeks. We hope to return to work as soon as possible and everyone will have confidence in the future again. The city is a key center for the country's aerospace industry and has attracted large foreign investment. The two flagship car plants there, Germany's Volkswagen and Sweden's Volvo, recently halted production after sanctions worsened a shortage of parts. The supply chain is disrupted. We don't have components to produce cars. The reason is well known. It's the unstable political situation in the world. Now the third plant, which is a joint venture between Stellantis and Mitsubishi, is also on the verge of closure. We have a WhatsApp group. We get information about the working schedule every other day. Tomorrow we are working, the day after tomorrow we are not working. We are not given concrete information or any future prospects. Some Kaluga residents remain optimistic. They believe the West might be reluctant to harm its own companies. I think the sanctions have been imposed against the factory. It is a European company. Does it make sense to impose sanctions on its own plant and lose money? Why? The prices have increased. The situation in the country is unstable. But we all hope that in the near future everything will stabilize and sales will be good again. Even prior to the current sanctions, car sales in Russia had already contracted, falling from 2.8 million units in 2007 to less than 1.7 million last year. This was caused by the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as a backlash against Russia's annexation of Crimea in 2014. We have had such furloughs at the factory, but there were problems with component supply, with chips. Now, of course, the situation is different, more serious, but we are waiting anyway. We are not losing hope. Analysts say inflation in Russia could soar to 24 percent this year, and its economy could shrink to 2009 levels. German police have shut down the servers of Hydra Market in Germany. The market was known as the world's largest darknet marketplace. In an official statement, the German Federal Criminal Police said they seized about $25 million worth of Bitcoin. The suspects are currently under investigation. The illegal marketplace was established in 2015 and served the Russian-speaking market. It was a venue for illegal drug selling and the trading of stolen credit card information, counterfeit banknotes, and forged identity documents. Hydra owned about 17 million customer accounts and about 20,000 seller accounts. According to German police, in 2020 alone, the marketplace generated sales of at least $1 billion. Still to come, the Oklahoma legislature sends a bill banning abortion to the governor's desk. The bill would only allow abortion if a mother's life was at risk. The governor is expected to sign it. And Ohio begins primary voting for some races amid controversy over the state's election maps. More on that soon, here on NTD News.
Special Counsel John Durham has published evidence against Michael Sussman showing he allegedly lied to the FBI in writing. Sussman is a former Clinton campaign lawyer. The evidence shows alleged text messages he sent to the FBI general counsel. The messages say he wasn't working for any client when he gave information to the Bureau. The special counsel's team charged the lawyer last year with lying to the FBI. Sussman had given the Bureau information about Donald Trump, who was a presidential candidate at the time. He presented it to former FBI general counsel James Baker in late 2016. Sussman allegedly concealed that he was working for the DNC, Clinton's campaign, and a tech executive. At the same time, he pushed the claim that the Trump organization had a secret link with a Russian bank. The FBI later said that was not credible. Here's what Sussman allegedly wrote to the former FBI general counsel. Jim, it's Michael Sussman. I have something time-sensitive and sensitive I need to discuss. Do you have availability for a short meeting tomorrow? I'm coming on my own, not on behalf of a client or company. want to help the Bureau. Thanks. Baker responded by saying they'd find a time to meet. Sussman's lawyers previously denied that their client made the claims to Baker, saying the statement was made verbally instead. But Durham's latest filing suggests that may have been in writing. Now we hear from Kash Patel. He's the former chief of staff to the acting United States Secretary of Defense under President Donald Trump. Their defense is in shambles right now, and I think largely because of some strategic blunders, but mostly because Michael Sussman lied and should be convicted of this crime. Patel has experience as a former public defender. He says in his experience, it's very difficult to defend against statements that one's own clients make. Because you can't run away from them. You have to own them, and you have to craft a defense around them. The hardest thing to do is when you have written statements, recorded statements that your client gave um, at two different periods of time that are contradictory. And that's what you have here. Sussman has pleaded not guilty and says he's done nothing wrong. What's more, his lawyers recently asked a federal judge to throw the case out. They argue that the Durham probe is politically motivated. Early voting for Ohio's primary election on May 3rd began Tuesday, but not all the races will appear on the ballot. The partial primary is scheduled to go ahead despite months of unresolved legal issues. The Ohio Supreme Court has repeatedly shot down proposed redistricting maps as unconstitutional gerrymandering. Voters will decide partisan primaries for the U.S. Senate, U.S. House, Governor, Secretary of State, and various local races and ballot questions. Candidates for the Ohio House, Ohio Senate, party central committees, and state school boards will not appear on the May 3rd ballots. Ohio's Secretary of State, Frank LaRose, was among those who participated in early voting at the Franklin County Board of Elections. A federal judge ordered Pennsylvania to hand over some records. They show that the state has allowed foreign nationals to register to vote for decades. The Public Interest Legal Foundation brought the lawsuit back in February 2018. The president of the group said Pennsylvania spent four years fighting transparency and trying to hide their mistakes. He said, quote, it is sad that transparency in Pennsylvania elections had to be enforced by a court. Pennsylvania acknowledged in late 2017 what it called a programming glitch. That glitch permitted foreign nationals to register to vote. The Public Interest Legal Foundation sought records demonstrating the extent of the problem and actions taken to fix errors. 
The state denied the request, saying the documents were outside the scope of federal inspection rights. The judge wrote in the court's decision that transparency in how states determine voter eligibility is the vital bedrock of our electoral system and that it is paramount. Democrats in the House Oversight and Reform Committee yesterday denied a motion to subpoena Hunter Biden. Republican Congressman Andy Biggs requested Biden as a witness at the committee's hearing on electrifying U.S. Postal Service vehicles. Biggs said he made the motion to subpoena the president's son because of what he called his invaluable expertise in cobalt mining. The congressman reasoned Hunter sold a U.S. cobalt mine to a Chinese company. Cobalt is necessary for electric car production. This is the latest attempt from Republicans to, quote, hold Hunter accountable for shady business dealings. The GOP members on the committee said in a tweet that the dealings make the U.S. more dependent on China for renewable energy. According to a November 2021 report in the New York Times, Hunter was part owner of a venture involved in the $3.8 billion purchase by a Chinese conglomerate of one of the world's largest cobalt deposits. Animal control workers captured a fox that made itself at home on Capitol grounds. It's not clear where the animal will be taken, but a rabies test is likely. The animal was tracked down after six people reported being bitten or nipped, including Representative Ami Berra. The California Democrat said he was bitten on his leg on his way to work Monday. He's doing fine, but is undergoing a rabies shot regimen out of precaution. However, a police warning said there could be more than one fox den near the hill. Backlash continues over the Biden administration's ending of Title 42. What are some officials warning and what can we expect at the southern border as a result of the rules repeal? NTD's Iris Tao has more. And now it's about to get a whole lot worse, a whole lot worse. That's what Representative Andy Biggs is saying today about the upcoming influx of migrants at the southern border. The former Customs and Border Protection Commissioner is warning of the same. A total catastrophic, unmitigated crisis where we've handed over operational control of our borders to the cartels. The backlash follows an announcement that the Biden administration will end Title 42, a pandemic-era restriction that has blocked many migrants from entering the U.S. And three Republican states, Arizona, Missouri and Louisiana, are suing the Biden administration for ending Title 42, arguing that it was done unlawfully and will have a devastating impact on states. Given the Biden administration's catch and release policies, this surge will lead to an ever-increasing number of aliens being released into American communities. Some rights groups have called for an end to Title 42, calling its expulsions inhumane. But the former ICE director today defended it, saying, well, illegal immigration is down 83%. How many women didn't get raped? How many children didn't drown? How many Americans didn't die of overdose deaths? I think they should be considered. Meanwhile, several Democratic senators are also calling to oppose the end of Title 42. Big says more are recognizing how an insecure border will sway the upcoming midterm elections. As Democrats look at it and they say they've got a real electoral challenge coming up in November, and they know that Americans, particularly in my state of Arizona, this is a top one or two issue. Reporting Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. The Oklahoma legislature has approved a bill that would make all abortions illegal, except in the case of a medical emergency to save the mother's life. The bill now heads to the governor, 
Republican Governor Kevin Stitt previously said he would sign any pro-life bill that reaches his desk. Under the bill, a person convicted of performing or trying to perform an abortion will be guilty of a felony. It would be punishable by up to 10 years in prison and or a fine up to $100,000. More than 100 people attended a rally outside the state capitol on the same day to protest the abortion ban. Planned Parenthood Great Plains Votes said the abortion restrictions are about shaming and stigmatizing people who need and deserve abortion access. The Oklahoma House on Tuesday also adopted a resolution to commemorate at least 61 million lives lost due to abortion. That's since the Supreme Court Roe v. Wade decision. Officials in Marion County, Florida, have arrested over two dozen men for seeking sex with kids or sending child pornography. The arrests happened during a six-day undercover sting operation called April Fools. Multiple law enforcement agencies were part of the undercover operation. Nineteen of the men were arrested after undercover officers exchanged messages with them. The men then traveled to various locations in Marion County, Florida, expecting to meet a child between ages 12 and 16 for sexual activity, but they met law enforcement instead. Speaking at a news conference, Marion County Sheriff Billy Woods said that officials have now arrested 27 individuals as part of the operation. Woods said one individual arrested works as a Florida Department of Corrections officer, another works in the school system, and one is the son of a city council member. The sheriff urged parents to keep tabs on their children and ensure they are using technology safely. Indiana State Police identified a now-deceased man as the suspect who raped and killed three women in Indiana and Kentucky in the late 1980s as they were working night shifts as motel clerks. Sergeant Glenn Fifield of Indiana State Police said a laboratory analysis of crime scene samples positively identified Harry Edward Greenwell, who died in January 2013, as the I-65 killer, so named because the attacks occurred at motels near Interstate 65. Greenwell was born in Kentucky and died in Iowa, and his obituary listed cancer as his cause of death. The Food and Drug Administration is warning of potentially contaminated raw oysters. The agency is working with the U.S. and Canadian public health authorities regarding a norovirus outbreak that has been linked to raw oysters from British Columbia. The FDA has confirmed that the oysters were distributed to restaurants and retailers in at least 13 states. Norovirus can infect people of all ages. The most common symptoms are diarrhea, vomiting, nausea, and stomach pain. Other symptoms include fever, headache, and body aches. Symptoms usually develop 12 to 48 hours after being exposed to the virus. People typically recover in one to three days. Health officials say food contaminated with norovirus may look, smell, and taste normal. Gas and other fossil fuels might become a thing of the past in New York State buildings. Governor Kathy Hochul is expected to soon release the state budget which some say will include a plan to ban fossil fuels in new buildings. According to a Reuters report, the governor will include the plan in this year's budget. In an address three months ago, she already talked about limiting greenhouse gas emissions for new construction and reaching zero emissions no later than 2027. New York would become the first state in the U.S. to ban gas and fossil fuels in new construction. NTD couldn't independently verify if the governor is really going to include the plan in her budget. Her office didn't respond to us before broadcast.
Just ahead, zoos across the country are trying to protect their birds from the spread of bird flu. They want to keep them from making contact with wild birds. And the International Space Station is set to welcome a team of commercial astronauts for the first time. What makes them different? Stay tuned to find out after this short break. Zoos across North America are moving their birds indoors and away from people and wildlife as they try to protect them from the highly contagious and potentially deadly avian influenza. So some of the steps that we took when we elevated our avian influenza plan was to bring our outdoor birds inside. Um, we are along one of the flyways, the migratory flyways, and some, some of our birds are exposed to wild birds, so we brought them all inside. So that includes our waterfowl, our Chilean flamingos, our African penguins, and some of our birds of prey. We do test any bird that, any wild bird that has um, died while on zoo grounds. So if a, a bird is found on zoo grounds, um, then we would test that bird. Chicago's Lincoln Park Zoo and Blank Park Zoo in Des Moines, Iowa are among the zoos taking extra precautions against bird flu. Penguins may be the only bird visitors to many zoos can see right now because they are already kept inside and usually protected behind glass in their exhibits. Nearly 23 million chickens and turkeys have already been killed across the United States to limit the spread of the virus. Zoos are working hard to prevent any of their birds from meeting the same fate. Birds spread the virus through droppings and nasal discharge. Experts say it can be spread through contaminated equipment, clothing, boots, and vehicles carrying supplies. A hot air balloon crashing in Southern California was caught on camera. The person who posted it to social media said the riders are okay. NTD's David Lamb brings us that video. In this video posted online by a user named Nick Talk, he said his first hot air balloon experience was going great until the winds picked up. Here we go. Right. Hang on. Hang on. The hot air balloon crashes onto an open field and continues to be dragged at a nearly 45 degree angle or steeper. A person in charge beckons everyone to hang on. Reports say the crash happened in the city of Paris in Riverside County. According to a study published in the National Library of Medicine from the years 2000 to 2011, there have been 78 reports of crashes involving hot air balloon tours. 81% of them occurred during landing. This video was posted in early April, and according to the post, Nick said, we are all okay. The International Space Station is set to become busier than usual this week when its crew welcomes aboard four new colleagues. They are from the Houston-based startup Axiom Space, the first all-private astronaut team ever flown to the orbiting outpost. The International Space Station is set to become busier than usual this week when its crew welcomes the first all-private astronaut team ever flown to the orbiting outpost. The four-man civilian crew from Houston-based startup Axiom Space plans to lift off Friday, weather permitting, from NASA's Kennedy Space Center in Florida, riding atop a Falcon 9 rocket furnished by Elon Musk's SpaceX. This is a very historic moment. 
we're like early days of internet and we haven't even imagined all the possibilities, all the capabilities that we're going to be providing uh, in space. The so-called AX-1 civilian crew will be led by retired NASA astronaut Michael Lopez Alegria, now Axiom's vice president of business development. He is set to be joined by real estate and technology entrepreneur and aerobatics aviator Larry Connor, who will serve as the mission pilot. Rounding out the team are investor philanthropist and former Israeli fighter pilot Eitan Stiba and Canadian businessman and philanthropist Mark Pathy. While the space station has hosted visits by civilian visitors from time to time, the AX-1 mission will mark the first all-commercial team of astronauts to use ISS for its intended purpose as an orbiting laboratory. The team will be carrying equipment and supplies for 26 science and technology experiments. These include research on brain health, cardiac stem cells, cancer and aging, as studies have shown that spending time in space can cause changes in the body that resemble aging. We now know that when you go to space, there's a little bit of acceleration in aging, right? And so we're doing some clinical research and saying, wow, if, if there's a little acceleration, can you know, and identifying what causes that acceleration, and by understanding that, can we slow aging? The AX-1 crew says that their biomedical research is what sets them apart from the wealthy passengers hurling to space aboard Jeff Bezos's Blue Origin and Richard Branson's Virgin Galactic rockets, with the AX-1 leader recently telling reporters, quote, we are not space tourists. The next generation of presidential planes is being delayed by two years. Boeing is making the two aircraft, which were due at the end of 2024. But the Air Force says that deadline has been pushed back because of the COVID-19 pandemic, manpower limitations, design timelines, and test execution rates. Boeing isn't commenting on the delay. The Air Force says the current fleet is airworthy, but might need extra maintenance. The two new planes cost nearly $4 billion, but the government could end up paying more than $5 billion when all testing is done. General Motors and Honda are joining forces to build a $30,000 electric car. That's no small task because doing it in a profitable way is trickly, due in no small part to the high cost of battery components. But GM and Honda say they think they've found the solution. Teamwork. The two auto giants announced the collaboration on Tuesday. They will also explore ways to develop new, cheaper batteries to improve vehicle performance and sustainability. The companies are already looking at new options like silicone, lithium metal, and solid-state batteries. GM said it will offer a compact SUV for under 30 grand as early as 2027. Honda wouldn't reveal pricing for vehicles that may come from the partnership. The company has already said it will launch an electric Honda and Acura SUV in 2024. Coming up, the U.S., Australia, and Britain are cooperating in the development of hypersonic missiles. This could be an effort to counter Beijing's threat in the Indo-Pacific region. All that and more after this short break. Leaders of the AUKUS Defense Agreement have jointly announced they will cooperate in military upgrades, and their goal is to develop hypersonic missiles. The United States, Australia and Britain say they will join together in an effort to develop hypersonic missiles. 
Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison spoke of the agreement on Wednesday. Now, what we've announced overnight is that uh, hypersonics and uh, the various technologies that surround hypersonics um, are very much a part of what the AUKUS partnership is, is striving to deliver, not just in Australia, but in the United States and the United Kingdom as well. Hypersonic missiles have ultra-high speed and maneuverability. They are capable of both evading defenses and delivering rapid strikes. Their kinetic energy can effectively destroy targets, even without high explosives. Morrison calls them a modern warfare technology that are as critical as cyber capabilities. Hypersonics are one of the fastest developing area of missile technology and while Australia together with our partners and allies have very sophisticated and very advanced forms of defence, hypersonics are an area where we're looking to significantly upgrade our capabilities. AUKUS is a defence pact formed last year between Australia, Britain and the United States. While the Biden administration says the new AUKUS deal is not aimed at any country, many see it as a response to China's assertive actions in the Indo-Pacific region. Meanwhile, the U.S. has approved a possible arms sale of over $90 million to Taiwan amid threats from China. According to the Pentagon, the plan aims to improve the island's air defense capabilities. Traditional wooden coffins are running short in Hong Kong, and authorities are scrambling to find mortuary space in the global financial hub's battle against COVID-19. Here's the latest in Hong Kong. In the mortuaries and funeral parlors of Hong Kong, the remains of COVID-19 victims have piled up faster than the staff can manage. Public mortuaries have had to find ways to triple their space for bodies, borrowing facilities from a nursing home and charities, while the number of available coffins is running low, and hygiene officials say their crematoriums are running around the clock. They are all grim signs of the city's battle with the fifth wave of the virus. The extensive backlog of paperwork for the victims has also forced some bereaved relatives to endure long waits to collect patients' bodies. A 36-year-old Kate told Reuters she wasn't able to see her father-in-law before he passed away. When the doctors and nurses thought my father-in-law's situation was not okay, we rushed to the hospital, but it was already too late. Since he was in the isolation ward, we couldn't see him for the last time. To add to this, outbreaks nearby are making it hard to even pay respects. Hong Kong is dependent on mainland China for nearly all of its coffins, as well as paper offerings used at traditional Chinese funerals. But a surge in cases across the border in Shenzhen has delayed the delivery of many supplies. Lok Chung, a funeral director in Hong Kong, saw 40 funerals in March, up from the 15 he sees in a normal month. That's probably uh, the worst situation uh, that I've, I've ever seen in, this pro in my professional career. I've never seen so many bodies that they have been piled up together. I've never seen the family members being so upset, so disappointed. Since Hong Kong's fifth wave began earlier this year, more than a million COVID-19 cases and over 8,000 deaths due to the disease have been reported. One of Hong Kong's top security officials, John Lee, has announced his resignation. He says he will run in the leadership election in May. Lee said he has to wait for Beijing's approval. This decision comes two days after Chief Executive Carrie Lam said she would not seek a second five-year term. Lee has been regarded as the number two official in Hong Kong. He is also the Chinese Communist Party's most favored candidate in the race. He once served as deputy commissioner of police. 
In 2021, he was appointed second chair of the Global Financial Center. According to analysts, Beijing's choice of Li suggested that the regime tends to prioritize Hong Kong's so-called security over its economy. After the enforcement of the new national security law, Hong Kong's security officials have been gaining power. If successful, Li would become the first leader with a police background in Hong Kong since its handover in 1997. Coming up, the war in Ukraine is affecting the elections in France. Some candidates are shifting their stance on Putin. Find out more in just a moment. You're at NTD News. Air France pilots have a scare in the cockpit. Alarms go off on a New York to Paris flight and pilots abort the jet's first landing. The jet lands safely after emergency measures. When the Boeing 777 descended to 1,200 feet, it became unresponsive. Pilots were uncertain the passenger jet would be able to land safely without emergency procedures. The jet ascended so the crew could work out an alternate landing process. The jet approached the runway again and was able to land safely at Charles de Gaulle Airport in Paris. In a recording obtained by Air Live, the pilot is saying he will use radar guidance and asks for guidance with tailwind. Air France apologized to customers and says a technical incident caused the aborted landing. An Air France spokesman says crews are regularly instructed in the emergency procedures used and that they are used by all airlines to guarantee safety. The French will be heading to the polls on Sunday to vote in the presidential election. That comes amid Russia's war on Ukraine that has had a rippling effect on the political field in France. It forced U-turns on Putin from some candidates, and it has also penalized Macron's preference for international diplomacy over campaigning. All the usual trappings of a French presidential election are there. The billboards and signs, the endless TV appearances and speeches. But this year's elections to determine who will lead the nation for the next five years seem surprisingly lifeless. According to one poll, fewer than two voters in three are interested in the campaign, which a majority said has been of poor quality. At least part of the reason may be that the news and minds here are concentrated on the war in the Ukraine. President Emmanuel Macron, sometimes ridiculed for his stretch table diplomacy and tireless efforts to first head off and now end the war, nonetheless got a boost to the polls at the beginning of the campaign. As horrific scenes from the streets of Bucha, Ukraine, flowed into French salons and cyberspace, the leading candidates all were outraged, but some are haunted by what they've said previously. The candidate from the far right, a TV pundit, says there needs to be an investigation, yet in the past has sounded pro-Putin. Vladimir Putin, Vladimir Putin defends his interests. He's a Russian patriot. The Americans have done much to provoke Putin. The candidate on the far left says Russia must respond to the charge of war crimes. Yet earlier he said, Russia is a partner. I don't agree with making them into an enemy. The candidate on the center-right has had the most consistent position supporting Ukraine and said Russia can no longer be thought of as an ally of France. Tell Vladimir Putin, stop now. 
And the other candidate on the far right, Marine Le Pen, Macron's likely opponent in the election runoff April 24th, said Bucha was clearly a war crime. But in the past, she admits, her party once took millions in loans from a Russian bank because, she says, she was turned down by French banks. The act of escalation that the president, Vladimir Putin, has decided to do is really regrettable. With his stature as a world player magnified by the war, now Macron says Russian authorities must answer for their crimes. Because of his efforts to end the war, politically he might be the biggest beneficiary from French worries about it. But in the wake of Bucha, his opponents question where exactly he has obtained results. From the beginning, Macron has been expected to win re-election. But at his first, last and only big rally, a week before the first round of voting, his poll standings seem to be melting away, and his supporters worried about whether they can motivate a turnout in the shadow of a war in Europe. The French are adding a bit of fun to the presidential election. They're predicting the outcome in a curious way through sock sales. Are the forecasts reliable? Let's take a look. Aside from polls, the French are using an unexpected way to predict how the first round of the presidential election will turn out. A French sock retailer put the faces of the eight leading candidates on its products. The owner says percentage of sales hint at the possible winner. Some people answer the telephone for polls, and some buy socks, and the people who buy socks really pay money for them. And so we have a view that's not contradictory to the polls, but that's complementary and should not be dismissed. The top three in most polls are incumbent Emmanuel Macron, Marine Le Pen, and Jean-Luc Mélenchon. But this sock store predicts a different outcome. We conducted the first tally of sales 10 days before the first round of votes a couple of days ago. And for the moment, Eric Zemmour is in first place with around 29% of sales. President Emmanuel Macron is at 24%, and Jean-Luc Mélenchon is at around 22%. These special socks are produced in Portugal, but the store has sold thousands of pairs worldwide since the launch of the initiative. In Germany, the highest-selling candidate is Emmanuel Macron, and Jean-Luc Mélenchon is the highest-selling candidate in Greece. Eric Zemmour sells as top of the list in Canada. Their predictions add a bit of spice to the ongoing election. We very much need, in a period as complicated as this, to be able to have fun with daily life products like this and have a more fun and unique end to the campaign. The first round of the election will be held on Sunday. If no candidate is declared a winner, a runoff will follow in two weeks between the top two finishers. As outrage mounts over evidence of possible war crimes by Russian forces in Ukraine, world-renowned ballet dancers from the two countries danced together in a performance in Naples to appeal for peace. NTD's Neil Woodrow brings us this report. The San Carlo Theatre in Naples saw a sold-out benefit performance Monday night. The performance aimed to raise funds for the Red Cross and champion the cause of peace in Ukraine featured dancers from both Russia and Ukraine. Olga Smirnova resigned in March as Bolshoi first ballerina and currently is prima ballerina with the Dutch National Ballet in Amsterdam. I think it's important in this situation, in this time, to be together on stage to, to do little thing, the smallest thing what we can do for Ukraine. 
Fellow prima ballerina Anastasia Gerskaya said her performance is a way to help Ukraine. I'm really happy that I will, no, I'm here and I can, um, uh, I can help and support my country uh, for my dancing. Despite the event's description, the prospect of Russian dancers dancing on the same stage with Ukrainians reportedly angered Ukraine's consul in Naples. He subsequently asked the artistic director of the show to shun the performance. Olga is a very strong image for us because obviously she was the first dancer who publicly opposed the regime. So to have her with us tonight is an inspiration for courage. Before rehearsals, one of the Ukrainian dancers spoke about a small town near Kiev where the chilling discoveries of civilian bodies emerged in the last few days. Associated Press journalists saw the bodies of at least 21 people in various spots around Bucha, northwest of the capital. Stanislav Oshansky, who has danced at the Kiev Opera House since 2018, lived in Bucha for five years. I know this city. I walk in this street. I, this photo, what I see, it's, I know this place. I know what is this. It's horrible. I can't think about this. Ukrainian dancer Denis Cherevichko and Russian dancer Maria Yakovleva have worked together previously for 16 years in one company. And um, we are really good friends and partners. Um, we're supporting each other all the time and especially right now it's very important to be both of us and to support and to show to the people that, that love peace, art, support and help will save this world. I love Ukrainian people. Uh, we all friends and in the ballet world. Um, we're all just dancers. There is no nationality, there are no different religion. Among the performers of the event, five were Russians and nine were Ukrainians. Outside the theater, about a dozen protesters, some wearing Ukrainian flags, demonstrated to show discontent over the participation of Russian dancers on the stage. The sold-out performance was, however, appreciated by the audience. Neil Woodrow, NTD News. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to put our email on screen. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.